I'm excited to remind you about our upcoming Harry Potter in the Heart of Christmas presentation at Crystal Lake Baptist Church in Burnsville, Minnesota on December 11th and December 18th. In preparation for this presentation, I thought it would be enjoyable and helpful to talk about Harry Potter and the Christian, why Christians should read Harry Potter, and then to just talk about the, the beauty of Harry Potter, the literary beauty, and, and the meaning that we find in that book. Sometimes I invite people to this podcast and have really scripted interview questions, and other times we do a more free-flowing conversation. Well, for this topic, I've invited my friend Ethan Miller, who's a student at Bethlehem College and Seminary, pursuing a Master of Divinity and a pastoral assistant at Eden Baptist Church in Burnsville, to talk with me about Harry Potter. And we're going to have a free-flowing discussion, not a full-on interview. So Ethan, thanks for coming down on this early Tuesday morning to talk about children's literature. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is exciting. Well, first, I just want to start by commenting on the value of children's literature. Uh, you, Ethan, I know enjoy children's literature and, and maybe even writing and <laughs> <Yeah>. telling <laughs> stories for children. Uh, but but talk to me about your experience with children's literature, either as a child growing up or, or right now. Yeah, I um, was very influenced, uh, especially, I think, by C.S. Lewis. I say I was raised by... My mom and my dad and C.S. Lewis, uh, mostly talking about Chronicles of Narnia. Um, So I I, I think there's something beautiful about just as a child being able to think and imagine another world and then think of how good is done in that world and how you might do good in your world. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, yeah, I love children's literature. I think it's a really important um, thing for children to be involved in and to love and to just be a part of. So yeah, I I think Lewis probably for a lot of Christians is the gateway to <laughs> to the fairy tale and, yeah. and using fairy not in the Disney sort of way, mm. but in the Tolkien and, yep. and Lewis sort of way. Uh, I I grew up in a similar way. My my dad. One of my favorite memories is when my dad read to us the entire Chronicles of Narnia series. And he had different voices for each of the characters. And I think that's where, where my love for Narnia started. But then um, I, I think it's good for us to to realize that these stories shape us and, and make us into a particular people as we envision mm. the world in a certain way. And there, there are a couple really good books about this. The Call of Stories by Robert Cole. There's, an, there's another one called, um, well... I'm I'm blanking on it. Vegan Gurian, I think, is his name, but um, he he's talking about the way that these stories shape the imagination. It's a book called. It's coming to me now. Tending the Heart of Virtue, mm. and in both of these, I think, it'll talk about what Lewis and Tolkien and others are trying to do. Mm. Um, but but you have done some creative story <laughs> making of your own is that right yeah yeah it's okay. uh it's the one that i've been doing that you're probably thinking of is called the boy with the bow okay and uh and um what people know of that story so far is um not so much not as fantastic or magical as c.s lewis's mm-hmm books are, but it's, it's pretty, it's, it's gonna, it's, it is. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, whatever that's worth. Well, um, um I haven't heard any of it or okay. read any of yeah. it, Yeah. but hopefully, <laughs> hopefully I'll be able to. Well, we're, we're shifting to talk about Harry Potter here and I already have signaled, I put it in the same sort of realm as a Tolkien and, and Lewis's writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's that's not the case for every Christian who's heard of Harry Potter or perhaps encountered it. Um, so it might be good for us to talk about objections that Christians have had to Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I grew up in a home where we were not allowed to read or watch Harry Potter. And so my first encounter with the series was as a college student, um, I had been working at a summer camp, and in between summer and the semester, I had a free week, and so in a week, I read all of them, and and that's all, all that them. I did, all all seven of them, and and I realized upon reading them that the things I had heard, the objections I had heard, probably weren't as strong as um, focus on the family and some other organizations had really 
presented them mm-hmm. to be. Yeah. So what, what are some objections that you've heard to reading Harry Potter? Yeah, yeah. I, I think probably the the biggest and first objection is that it's it it um, sees witchcraft as something that's good and lovely and wonderful. And um, we as Christians know that uh, witchcraft, it, witchcraft, excuse me, is bad. That we shouldn't love witchcraft, and um, there are a bunch of bad people who, mm-hmm. you know, um, try to take the way that God has ordered the world and change it mm-hmm. and do their own thing with it. So I, I think that's probably the biggest objection I've yeah, run into. Yeah, th- that's the that's the biggest one I've heard. Um, and it, but it's not the the one that I have. I, ha- I oh, have yeah. some <laughs> objections to Harry Potter actually, but <laughs> yeah. but I think. That's right. We read texts in Scripture in Deuteronomy and other places that condemn, you know, necromancy and sorcery and, and calling up the dead and these sorts of things. And I think one of the reasons those texts get applied to Harry Potter and not to uh, Mary Poppins or to the Wizard of Oz or to Narnia or or Tolkien mm-hmm. is that maybe the witches and wizards don't take center stage in in the same way that they do in Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, there are wands, there are there's magic, there are wizards and witches in these things. You know, Mary Poppins, her her wand is sort of her umbrella. Um, you know, Gandalf's is his staff. Um, you know, the the three fairies in Sleeping Beauty have wands, you know, but but I think it takes center stage in a in a new way in Harry Potter because it's a school setting a school of witchcraft and wizardry. Yes. And, and so I think it starts to um, bring out more of those objections. Mm. But um, maybe what? How, how have you looked at the text of Scripture that condemn these sorts of things and reconciled your reading and enjoyment of Harry Potter or any, any other fantasy literature fairy tale with it? Yeah, I, I think in in literature, when we're reading a book, I think a helpful question for us to ask is, um, who is God in this book, or or how is um, the the deity of this book functioning? Mm-hmm. I think that's helpful, and um, why that's helpful is is uh, in in the Bible, necromancy, augury, these sorts of. Um, uh, dare we say, magical, Mm wizard-like things are actually in direct opposition to God and in direct opposition to the good or the people who are good. Um, And so so I think we can kind of draw a bit of a correlation. Um, When I'm looking at literature, like when I'm looking at, let's say, Narnia, and I'm seeing magic being used, obviously there is like bad magic, right? Mm-hmm. There's bad people who use magic the wrong way, and there's the witch. Yeah, the who, white witch. Yeah, she's she's like as bad as it gets. I don't want to use her magic. But there also is magic that does good, and that's um, in the service of Aslan and his the, his the people who work with him. So I don't know if that's answering your question. Yeah, I, I think so. I think we're recognizing what, what power lies behind this. And yes. I think when we're talking about the, the witchcraft and sorcery condemned in the Bible, there's a clear sense that these things are connected to dark powers. Yes. In in terms of the ancient Near Eastern worldview, this likely would have been these territorial gods uh, and, and their minions that are being drawn upon. Um, and then in, in terms of the modern world, we would think we would just say demons or, or some kind of evil spirits yeah. that are behind this. And it's interesting to note when we do see magic performed in the Bible of this sort, uh, it's it's bizarre. And when there are results, it's almost surprising. So I think of the the <laughs> necromancer yeah. that Saul visits and yeah. uh, to call the spirit of Samuel, and it's shocking when it happens, mm. you know. So I think there that a lot of that probably was more of a money maker for some people, where where <laughs> there's a sense that there's this reality and, and there are these dark powers that have been used. Uh, but I think people were trying to make a buck a little bit and. Um, in so doing, we're pledging allegiance to someone other than the God of Israel. But then when something happened, it was shocking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then even those who maybe 
saw stuff happen. We think of the sorcerer in Acts who, as soon as he mm-hmm. sees the power of the spirit, he's like, okay, everything I've been doing is a sham. Mm-hmm. I, I want the real thing. And of course, not for the right reasons. Uh, <laughs> so, so I think we can look at these individuals and say, there's an allegiance to something wrong and evil. That's an, a, a very white witch-like allegiance or I think my favorite one, the ma- the magician's nephew, where you have this ancient world that they get. There is a setting up of I am queen of everything, and I'm going to do whatever it takes to crush anyone in my way. And I think it's that kind of magic um, that is talked about in the Bible. That's a very real magic in, in the sense that there are real powers behind it. And so then when we start to read literature that, you know, incorporates magic, we do, I think, get a sense that that's real in the same way that it was real in the Bible. And it's, it's evil. You've got to stay away from it. Yes. Uh, so you've, you've got, you know, evil individuals in Lord of the Rings who are drawing on powers that should never be touched. Yes. You know, languages that should not even be uttered. uttered. You know, Gandalf is afraid maybe to read the inscription on, on the ring. And and so I, I think on, on one level, as we look at this, to say that the Bible's condemning um, every, you know, the good and the bad is not, not a quite enough nuanced way of talking about this. And in fact, I think stories like Narnia and Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter illustrate there's a distinct difference between good and evil. Uh, so in Harry Potter, you have this defense against the dark arts. And and I think it's interesting that anyone reading Harry Potter, if you walk away saying, I want to tamper with the dark arts or this, you know, sort of occultic magic. You're you're the one who's going to lose in the end. Like you're you're the one who's going to get crushed. In 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 that way, I think ironically, it might actually help individuals calibrate to resist this, you know, allurement, whatever allurement there might be towards evil and and dark power and using that power to manipulate things in this world. Yeah, and that and that's one of the beautiful things about magic in literature is it actually in some ways it helps us elevate reality mm-hmm. and elevate um especially um in Lord of the Rings um and and Harry Potter too the the differences between evil and good mm-hmm. um in in a way it's it just takes a lot it's a lot harder and it takes a lot more work to elevate those differences, I think even just in the the physical realm of literature, and so especially with kids' stories, magic helps us um, just cut through a lot of those difficulties that kids might have in like, oh, but that's an adult, um, and, and you know that's you know that's a good adult, that's a bad adult. I'm I'm struggling with that. Magic just helps us kind of just break through that barrier and yeah. just say, you know, this is this is the dark arts. Whoa, that's really bad. And this mm-hmm. is good. You know, this is good magic that has its realms and yeah, possibilities. Yeah, I I think that's right. And I think the the fairy world this this world actually helps us see how enchanted and magical our world actually yes. is. Um, <laughs> I, I think, unfortunately, a lot of us Christians sort of buy into this naturalistic worldview, mm. and and we then ignore texts of Scripture that talk about the, the wars against principalities and powers mm. and the spirits of this age. And we we so scienceize, that's not a word, but but we so speak <laughs> in the language of the Enlightenment and, and the scientific revolution that uh, these marvelous, amazing things just seem mundane and, and they lose their enchantment. Uh, you know, and, and children don't have that yet. They they flip on a light switch. And it's magic, you know, like the light came on. I mean, we can explain it and we can rig it up. But I think if we, you know, some someone I read somewhere wrote, you know, if the sun only rose once every thousand years, we'd say this is magical, yeah. uh, you know. But yeah. because we can explain things with the language of science, we lose, I think, the beauty that's there. And by engaging in a world where some of these realities are are directly talked about as magical, we, we start to sense our world is far more surprising and not able to be nailed down in the language of science as we might want it to be. Mm, yeah. And, and even, yeah, just to add, just to tag on to that, that, that magic and the idea of magic just brings out beauty in a way um, that, that if, if we looked at our world as 
perhaps if we looked at our world as more magical than scientific, we would be very excited and find it extremely beautiful. Yeah. And, and of course, we're, when we're saying magical, we're, we're not say, speaking in terms of the occult or, or yes. something yes. like that, but in terms <laughs> of the, the way that God made this world within the sense of wonder that I think Good. we ought to have as we encounter it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, that, that becomes challenging when you live in a naturalistic society that just says mm-hmm. this stuff evolved. And, mm-hmm. and that's why we need to read the origin story of the Bible. We need to read, you know, the, the magician's nephew as Aslan sings into existence creatures in life. And, you know, and, and I think fairy tales in their proper proper understanding of that. Not the Disney way. I, I, sh- I want to just say again, fairy tales, I, I think we I could just do without Disney altogether. <laughs> I think that the way they do things is awful, oh, uh, but we have to yeah. read better things. Yes. Um, yeah. I, I'm reading a, an annotated edition of The Hobbit, and so there are all these really interesting notes in, in the introduction. They were talking about when the um, the Hobbit and the other Lord of the Rings books were going to come in an illustrated edition. The the publishing company was looking for artists, and they're interacting with Tolkien on this. And he said, "That's fine. You know, I he drew some really great, you know, things mm-hmm. to go along with it. But he was fine with it being outsourced. But he just said, don't let those people at Disney do it. I hate the way <laughs> that they represent things. Um, That's wonderful. <laughs> so in the, in, in the spirit of Tolkien, we can say, I, I think a lot of what Disney has is just awful and, and uh, yeah. this is much better but mm. I I, th- I think it would be good to conclude this section on maybe our apology apologetic for reading Harry Potter by referencing an article called Harry Potter and the Baptism of the Imagination by a, a lady named Carrie Birmingham uh, th- Lewis and Tolkien and the Inklings and others talked about the imagination almost as a faculty of learning like we we engage with the world in our imagination and so we need to imagine rightly and we in the bible read of things like vain imaginations you know but the imagination should not be used vainly but should be used rightly and so there's this language of baptizing the imagination and and what they're saying is there's a communication of truth that's ascertained through the imagination that our cognitive framework just might not even be able to handle or be able to detect. Now, hang on to that, because I'm, I'm going to circle back to that. <laughs> but this lady is explaining why she thinks that Harry Potter is actually a Christian story, and she's trying to unravel why Christians encounter it and, and are troubled by it. And the first, before she gets into it, just by way of preface, she mentions that most Christians that she knows who struggle with Harry Potter or would condemn it, have not read it and have only heard other people condemn it. And there's almost this amplification. And I've traced it back to focus on the family, warning that it would draw children into the occult and these sorts of things. And I I, I don't think that's a fair critique that they gave, but I think it's had a, a big impact on individuals yeah. and they've identified Harry Potter as, as the evil thing. When, when I would say, actually, Mary Poppins might be more evil than, than Harry Potter. <laughs> um, but she, she then goes on to identify three mistakes of, uh, that Christians make when they read Harry Potter and walk away with the wrong, pers- wrong understanding. And these are actually hermeneutical mistakes. They're interpretation mistakes. Mm-hmm. And this is reality. I don't think that a lot of people know how to read a book um, in in. Christians who don't know how to read a book often are uh, not reading the Bible well either. And what she's going to point out here, I think, are important hermeneutical tools that we need to think about when we approach any book. Mm. She says first and, and perhaps most significant, the first and most significant mistake has to do with understanding Harry Potter's literary form. And so she's going to say that this book is a melding of genres, and and so you have to recognize the genres that are there. There's adventure, mystery, myth, fantasy, and Lewis and Tolkien use this term fairy tale, but there, there's this also coming of age story there. There's also this unique genre of the boarding school story, you know, where, where the kid goes off to boarding school mm. and learns and has an adventure. And that's what's going on in, in Harry Potter. And so you have to read it 
as a fairy tale, not a compendium on, on magic. And if Christians read it in as a fairy tale, they're going to remember these things are not to be taken literally. And I think a young reader, and she argues that a young reader instinctively will do this yes. in the same way that when they watch a, a film, uh, you know, a Disney film, you instinctively know um, the glass slipper isn't real. Okay. And, and the, the fairy godmother, you know, I, I would like to imagine a world where if my world is awful, that there's someone like a fairy godmother who, who can help me, but, but she's not real. Okay. We just get this instinctively and Christians forget that. Um, and, and then they forget along with that, the intended purpose of the fairy tale. And, uh, we, we could use, you know, the, the probably technical technical term of the illocutionary work of the fairy tale, what it does to you. But this this author notes that Lewis realized that a fairy tale may be the best way to convey important Christian truths precisely because traditional Christian stained glass and Sunday school trappings are absent in fairy tale. And then Tolkien wrote that the creation of fantasy world is a sub-creation that echoes God's creation of the world. And if a fantasy is created well, the essential truths of God's creation and redemption yes. can be seen as, quote, a far-off gleam or echo of evangelium in the real world. That's a, a quote from Lewis. But, but she's arguing that these fantasy stories allow the essence of Christian truth to be communicated to young readers in a way that captures their imagination so that then when they hear these things in the trappings of the stained glass in the Sunday school, they say, oh, this is true because I've already heard this and it, it resonates with me and it sort of frames the imagination to think in a certain way. Uh, she continues on, it's because these fairy fantasies compel us to enter an imaginary world in which we can identify with heroes who are clearly involved in the battle against evil, where love and forgiveness prevail in the end, where right choices and right actions are recognized as right, and where God's redemptive plan is just under the surface. And I think that's exactly what you were saying earlier. It just elevates these realities. And, and God's redemptive plan is right under the surface. And, and that's where I think parents need to hold their children by the hand. And as their imaginations are baptized with this Christian literature, that then they're, they're taken in to see the true truth. So that as... Um, Aslan says in one of the Narnia books, you know, you've, you need to learn, you've learned to love me here so that you can love me there in, in the real world. I don't know that exact quote, maybe you do, but I, it's striking. I, I think um, just on top of that, uh, I think one th place where people get tripped up with Harry Potter is um, uh, Rowling does a wonderful job of making the wizarding world like a potentiality. So there are these breaks from the wizarding world into the real world, and where they're the most funny and exciting and hilarious is when they she they break into and the uh, prime minister yeah. has to deal with. And and what what she's doing is she's not saying um, this is real and you should go seek after this. And like you said, kids know that. What she's saying is. Um, there are things going on in our world that we don't necessarily perceive clearly with our senses. And um, uh, th these, and we can draw, as we take our children by the hand, we can draw these correlations that, that, that God is doing wonderful and amazing things and even um, protecting us in ways that we can't necessarily see perfectly. So Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I think that that is probably one of the other objections I've heard is that the worlds blend, the magical world and the ordinary right. world. And and I understand that objection, but only to a point. And yes. I'll give three three reasons why I think the, that objection isn't sustainable. The first is just by recalling the stories that we're already comfortable with. And mm. if you think of the Chronicles of Narnia, the imaginary world of Narnia does break in to the ordinary world of Britain whether that's when a picture frame comes to life and water starts to mm -hmm. fill a world or when a trumpet sounds and you can hear it from, mm -hmm. from Narnia to, to the world calling you to, to this fantasy world. I, I think we have categories for this and it's like what you're saying is there there's a work happening in our world that we can't perceive naturally and that's because we're so naturalistic, which is mm -hmm. not what Christians should be. <laughs> but then second... 
I think that we should have the parallel in the Harry Potter stories between the, the magical world, the wizarding world, and the ordinary human world. We should parallel that with the Shire in the Lord of the Rings yes. and, and the yep. rest of Middle-earth. Even the way the stories start, the the Shire, you're introduced to the Lord of the Rings with there was there's a hole in the ground, and deep inside is a Hobbit, right? Well, mm. Harry Potter starts there's a cupboard under the staircase. You know, you still have the the same thing, and it's just this safe, ordinary world. Bil, you know, Bilbo is the most ordinary of hobbits. He's the most naturalist. He's a wealthy, safe sort of guy hidden away, okay? Well, in the first Harry Potter book, it's a cupboard under the staircase, and it's a family, the the most ordinary family, the Dursleys. What an ordinary name, you know? Like, that's, <laughs> they just sound like boring people. But it, I think we should look at the parallels between the ordinary world that's talked about in Harry Potter with the Shire, maybe more so than even our world. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and even there... Uh, we we recognize what happens in that world, the ordinary world in Harry Potter, isn't even real in the in the way that we want to strive for it. Yes, very true. Um, and then the third piece that I want to point out is what this author brings up, and she says that the second interpretive mistake is to confuse the is of Harry and his world with the ought of his world and ours. And and so what does happen isn't always what should happen. And this is true in any genre that we read, whether it's the Bible or Harry Potter. So I've been reading through the, the Pentateuch a ton. I, I think we all need to read the Pentateuch a lot. Amen. There, there's a lot that Abraham does that's not expressly condemned. And the is in Abraham's world isn't the ought of our world. So the the is that happens doesn't mean that it ought to have happened. And sometimes it's not directly condemned, you know, and we think of this at later texts, especially in the Bible, we think of someone like Solomon who who has a lot of wives in there and he's still called the wisest man in the world, you know, like, (laughs) and so we need to, as just good readers, distinguish between the is and the ought. And, and I think this is where I would encourage parents to read books to your children, whether it's the Chronicles of Narnia or Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings. There are a lot of is's in that book that aren't oughts, and they're, 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 it's shown that they're wrong. You're not told that it's wrong. Mm-hmm. I, I think building on that then, we need to train ourselves to see when the is gets condemned you know, implicitly, not explicitly condemned. And and that happens actually quite often in Harry Potter. Um, and, and the consequences of their actions just hit them all the time. And when, you're, when I read Harry Potter, in the first few books, Harry's the guy you want to be, you know, but then as he's coming of age, he becomes a guy that I really didn't like and was <laughs> irritated by and was glad when bad things happened to him because he deserved it. I don't, did you feel that way at all as you're, as you were reading the series? Yeah. And, and it's just genius writing because he's becoming this teenager that uh, doesn't really is trying to figure out how he fits into this world. Is trying to figure out almost um, how, how do I function to these other adults, and and he doesn't do a good job at that. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> and and your is versus was is a very helpful category for us to have, and a category that literature uses a ton. It just says this is the way that it is, and and. Um, I think maybe we're just a little, not a bad difference, but just a bit, we're, when Christians are reading the Bible, we're very used to, um, uh, even some of, we're used to focusing in on when the is is ultimately condemned. Mm -hmm. Um, And you mentioned some very good examples in the Pentateuch where it's not as clearly condemned, but we're always looking for this sense of like, this has to be as clear as possible, and I want it to be just so easy for me to understand. And um, in literature, it's a lot more um, nuanced because I think this is a helpful way that we can see these things, and I'm getting a little off track, so we can rein it in here in a couple minutes. Um, But uh, sometimes... Uh, we identify with characters who are 
not doing good things. Mm -hmm. And in that way, in the uh, prophet Nathan's way, we can um, be all about these people and see them and identify with them. And then we realize, whoa, I'm as bad as Harry Potter was in that instance. Exactly. I I think that's right. And this lady writes, Harry is not an idol, but a sinner. Yes. We identify with Harry in part because the books are written from Harry's perspective, but mostly because we, like Harry, are sinners. In telling a lie, (laughs) breaking a school rule, or making a gravely poor choice, (laughs) Harry tells the truth about us. Mm -hmm. I think that is right on. And, And I think we need to learn to read literature that way because characters are mixed bags you know and Shakespeare was so good at portraying this there aren't just purely good and purely evil characters all the time the majority of characters are mixed bags and that's because we're all mixed bags and and you're right whether it's literature or the bible that's not always explicitly condemned but we want to cling on to the explicitly condemned one yes but literature puts a demand on readers and that demand is to examine yourself and to take what you know to be true into that examination. So we'll read things, you know, I'm studying Ruth for this thing. And, you know, that introduction when, when Elimelech, God is my king and pleasantness and sickly and weak, leave the house of bread during a famine, we, we sometimes hesitate to condemn that. But mm. everything the Pentateuch would instruct us to say is, that's wrong. That's a lack of faith. This guy should have repented. Yep. And, and then when... Malon and Kilian marry these Moabite wives. You know, we were like, ah, well, it's not that bad. Ah, the 10 years of being married where no kids were there, you know, this is, we, we can't read into that. But what we should read into that is what the Pentateuch gives so us to read bad. into that. So much there's, bad. There's yeah. no seed. There's no fruitfulness in the yeah. land. There's no blessing, you know. And, and so we need to get honest with ourselves so that we can get honest with these texts. And they help us do that. They mm. force us to mm-hmm. confront who we are. Mm. So so the two mistakes she's given so far is first not recognizing the genre and what it's intending to do. The second mistake is to confuse the is of Harry and his world with the ought of his world and ours. And then third, she says, the third interpretive mistake is to rush to judgment. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, she's writing before the final books have been out. And so she's trying to keep people from rushing to conclusions. But the same is true for anyone reading through them. You know, the the final word doesn't come till the final day, you know, till the end. And it might look like there's moral ambiguity at certain points, and sometimes there is, uh, but don't rush to judgment and, and read for the larger picture. So I think it's true that sometimes... Harry and his friends are rewarded when they do wrong. Uh, and, and part of that is pushing back against this legalistic kind of stickler, live by the black and white tendencies that a lot of us have. And the Book of Ruth does this to us as well. How yes. come Boaz can marry a Moabite woman when a Moabite can't appear before the assemb- in the assembly of Israel mm-hmm. till the 10th generation? Mm-hmm. You know, the embodiment of the Torah that's being pictured by Boaz uh, is maybe freaky for some of us because it doesn't fit. Oh, it's not coloring in the lines. And that happens in Harry Potter a little, but as you start to look at the larger story, if you don't rush to judgment, if you wait till the end, I think you'll find that evil is thoroughly condemned and righteousness is thoroughly praised. And as the characters make mistakes along the way, perhaps what we would call sin along the mm-hmm. way and fail to stand in the right, to live righteously. Um, there's a measure of grace that we experience as we deal with others who fail. And as we fail, we, we look to the grace of God, but ultimately we look to the end where all will be set right. And I'm happy to say, this is a spoiler alert, in Harry Potter, it is all set right. <laughs> Evil is destroyed. You know, the the Gryffindor, the Lion of Judah triumphs over the the snake, you know, mm-hmm. in Slytherin, and then all the houses are united as one as they join in a meal together. And so it rings with this biblical imagery. But any anything else that we should hit on the objections to Harry Potter before we just talk maybe a little bit about um, how how Harry Potter is Christian and helpful and enjoyable. 
I think we should talk about Christianity, Aaron. Okay. <laughs> I'm just No, I yeah, I, I'm sure there are other ones, but I think we've hit on a lot of the big ones. Um and uh yeah, I think we should I okay, I'll, fine moving on. Let, let's end then this discussion about objections to Harry Potter by talking about what Harry Potter and other fairy tales do. And in the way that Lewis talks about it is these fairy tales, these fantasy stories, allow Christian truth to sneak past the watchful dragons, as he calls them, that would fend off anything that sounds religious. Okay, so he he says that these stories are communicating the essence of Christian truth in people who would not be willing to receive the Bible directly or a Christian tract or something like that are willing to receive the essence of Christian truth in these stories because it's framed in a way that sneaks past the watchful dragons that guard against anything that smacks of religion. So I'm going to quote from Lewis here in his essay, Fairy Stories, and and I really recommend that. Not very long essay, easy to read. He writes, I saw how stories of this kind could steal past a certain inhibition, which had paralyzed much of my own religion in childhood. Why did one find it so hard to feel as as one was told one ought to feel okay there are a lot of ones so let me re- <laughs> why did one find it so hard to feel as one was told one ought to feel about god or about the sufferings of christ i thought the chief reason was that one was told one ought to an mm. obligation can f- to feel can freeze feelings mm. and we all you know when parents tell their kids love your sister you're you're going to freeze the feeling you know and and i mm-hmm. think that's sometimes what direct christian teaching can do to someone who's disinclined to feel the right way about what what god says he goes on and reverence itself did harm the whole subject was associated with lower voices almost as if it were, were something medical but supposing that by casting all these things into an imaginary world, stripping them of their stained glass and Sunday school associations, one could make them for the first time appear in their real potency. Could one not thus steal past those watchful dragons? I thought one could. And, and I think the Chronicles of Narnia, Lord of the Rings, and Harry Potter do this. Mm-hmm. They, they sneak this truth by, you know, either simply uninterested Christians or, or adamantly opposed atheists to hear the essence of Christianity. And, you know, Lewis goes on to, to say that any amount of theology can be smuggled into people's minds under cover of romance or under cover of fairy without their knowing it. And I think that's great. Mm-hmm. And the way that it relates to Harry Potter is this... Um, school motto okay of hogwarts which is in latin and if you if you type it in you kind of get out never tickle a sleeping dragon and and i think the (laughs) motto that that lewis is talking about is don't tickle the sleeping dragon let's get let's get truth past the watchful dragons i think that um rolling is doing this now aaron i i think there i i was just thinking there might be one more objection um and someone looking at the differences between the authors of chronicles of narnia and lord of the rings and harry potter is um they might say well um rolling is not a christian um how do we how could a non-christian write something that tells me about jesus okay that that's a good question and I have a few answers. The first is that Tolkien and Lewis were not the kind of Christians who would be members of our church. Um, you know, Tolkien is a Roman Catholic. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lewis is more of a general Christian than than anything else. You know, he he's just not an atheist. Is really maybe how we should describe him. And on on that level, we just have to say that these guys despite, you know, a lot of problems in their theology and thinking, got the big story of redemption. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that with them, their catching of that story and then retelling it is what they did in a really valuable way and in a way that just we have to marvel at God's grace in these guys' lives, mm-hmm. okay? Because there, there are a lot of things where we just say, how could you believe that theologically? Um, but but you got the redemptive arc and, and you saw how it connects to every piece of life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that Rowling is writing in the same tradition. She is in Britain 
in the world of the Anglican Church, and I, I think that what the Anglican Church gets well is the redemptive arc. They, they yes. get that. Um, there's a lot that we would object to, and I don't think that they always consistently apply that to the social issues of our day or, or some other things, but she is writing within this stream. I sometimes wonder if if she knows that she is or not. Um, <laughs> I, I think perhaps she's just read so much good literature yeah, and she's read the Bible and, and it just works its way into her mm. writing without her even realizing it. Mm. Now, I, I think on one level she might not realize it because we all write things and we draw upon things we've known and heard and we don't see it until someone else points it out. Yes. So if you take a creative writing class, you'll you'll get this when someone else reads your stuff. But I, I do think on one level part of it is intentional because as she, you know, I think there were four books out and she was being interviewed and asked about the objections of Christians to her story. And, and the interviewer was asking her, can you tell us the end? She said, well, I can't tell you the end um, because, or, or I can't tell you what I believe because then you'd know the end of the story. You know, <laughs> when they were asking her if she was a Christian, she's like, yes, I'm a Christian, but I don't want to talk about what that means because then everyone will guess the end of the story. Mm. And what she's communicating there is I'm writing a Christian story. Yeah. And if you know the redemptive arc of the Bible, you're going to know what my story is. Mm. And really, as we read this, I think Wiccans and occultic-minded people are actually going to hate the Harry Potter stories yes. if yeah. they read them helpfully. If, totally. if they cut out everything, if they do what Thomas Jefferson did to the Bible, <laughs> to, to Harry, Harry Potter books, they, they could like it. But you can't like it if you hate the gospel. Mm. Um, and, and as we'll talk about at this Harry Potter thing coming up, I think that last book, the, the whole ending mirrors the life of Jesus. And really, if you haven't read the Bible and you don't know redemptive history, you're not going to pick up on the things in here that are really quite explicit. So I'll just talk about the last one. You know, it's it's Christmas Eve. Um, Harry and his friend Hermione, you know, Hermes, the, the Greek messenger god, she's the interpreter of the story. So if you're reading Harry Potter and ever there's confusion about something, listen to Hermione yes. because she's <laughs> going to say what's happening. And nine times out of 10, she's right. She's yep. not always right because she's not perfect, but she's close on being right all the time, but Harry and Hermione are walking to the birth town of Harry on this cold winter night. They take this potion that makes them transform, you know, mm-hmm. and, and they're, they're walking hand in hand, this lonely, sad couple, lots alone in the world on Christmas night, and they're walking to this graveyard and to see see the tombstone of Harry's parents. And uh, he's reading on a tombstone along the way, he, and he sees the last enemy to be defeated is death. Okay, this mm. is a quote from the Bible. <laughs> Some people aren't going to know that, but he, he thinks, this is bad. Like, why mm. would someone put that on a tombstone? That's Death Eaters. That's Voldemort. That's, that's wrong. And what they're picking up on is this, um, kind of contrived way of stealing immortality. And of course, there are echoes of the garden there. You know, they've been cursed with death. Well, they're going to try to sneak in and eat of the tree of life. Let's, we got to, you know, there's a wrong way to pursue immortality and there's a right way. And that's by crushing death. Mm. And that's, and, and so they start to pick up on these themes, but then um, they go to this, they're hearing Christmas carols being sung. This is like, birth of Christ that's being set up. And if you've never read the Bible, you're not going to get this because what happens next is there's this battle between Harry and a snake. Okay. Again, the Bible's going to unlock this for you. And, Mm -hmm. And what happens is the snake is wrapping around Harry. There's this explosion and Harry's wand gets broken. And and Harry thinks that this wand is somehow special and carries powers beyond what he can even do. Well, what happens there? This is just a picture of the incarnation. Okay, so Christmas night, you know, incarnation happens. He loses his power. He's just like any other human mm-hmm. uh, as far as he can tell. And and then they continue on from there, and, and there's this uh, sword of Gryffindor that has to be gotten, but it's Harry eventually sees it. It's in the bottom of this pool of water. And so then he ends up jumping in on this icy winter night. He jumps Mm. in to grab this sword to show his, you know, true Gryffindorness. And he's going to die. He can't get out. And Ron, his friend, Ron the Baptist, I like to call him, (laughs) 
pulls Harry out of the water. Uh, and, and then there's this sort of near death resurrection scene towards the end. And, and then a, another guy cuts off the head of the snake and unites the houses. If, if you haven't read the Bible, um, you, you're not maybe going to be able to see this as clearly, but it's a Christ, it's a story that's, especially in the last book, point by point connected to the life of Jesus and in, in then the vision of the new earth in Revelation. <laughs> so that I, I, I should stop there, but I, I think that um, Christians who would say, well, Rowling, I've seen her Twitter. It's not great. Right. Um, though lately she's actually gotten thrown down on by the left because she's not pro-transgenderism in these sorts of things. And uh, so I, I think that she communicates Christian virtue. Sometimes she speaks better than she knows. Other times she's doing it very intentionally. Yeah. yeah. Helpful. Okay. Yeah. So That's let's good. let's talk, uh, and I guess that sort of bridged into um, Harry Potter's Christian literature. But right. um, talk to me about some of the things you've enjoyed most about Harry Potter as we end here, the the story and um, and its impact on you as a Christian. Yeah. Well, or whatever you wanted to talk about. <laughs> that's a big. That's a big question. And and I'll preface this saying I've read through this like. Harry Potter like one and a half times. So I'm, okay. I'm a very new Harry Potterite, so to <laughs> <Okay>. speak. <laughs> um, I think uh, something, S- Snape is a very, another spoiler alert, just shut this off if you're reading through, but Snape is such an interesting character. Mm-hmm. He's someone who does something that's right um, no matter who and doesn't care what other people think. Um, and I, I think there's some dubious things that he does. There's some is's of his life that may be not to be aughts. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the overarching character of Snape is um, this decision to sacrifice the... Um, people the, the outside people's idea of him mm-hmm. for the greater good and um uh i found that to be extremely helpful in my christian walk to say that i'm not out there to be popular with people i'm not out there necessarily to be loved and and i'm a very like happy go lucky guy and i am i am a people pleaser and so for to have the character of Snape, who was not at all a people pleaser, um, even though sometimes he appears to be, uh, to just help me to realize that um, I'm called to do what's right, no matter if I'm making, you know, Harry Potter and his friends happy all the mm-hmm. time, um, was really helpful for me. So just a small thing. Yeah, um, I, I think that's good. And it, it reveals the character development that's so yeah. <laughs> prevalent here. And it, it also is a reminder that to talk about the uh, tough things that Harry Potter brings up, you know, yeah. there are questions about what is the good. Mm. You know, you have some people who are saying we have to do this for the greater good. And and their definition of good is actually not virtuous. Yes. Um, and, and then you have others who learn what the good is and, and learn to give everything for that. Mm. Um, mm. You, you are forced to ask, where did evil come from? Mm. You know, you, you were asked this a dozen times with Voldemort, you know, it, Tom Riddle, you know, yeah. is his name. Yeah. And that's that's the answer. It's a bit of a riddle. But in those questions being raised, she rules out actually a lot of bad answers to the problem of evil. Like there's just an equal good force and an equal bad force, a yin and yang. Yeah. And, and so there are questions of the problem of evil that are raised, the, the question of what is good and what is true and what is beautiful. Mm. Um, and, and there's the, uh, question of who's actually the main character in this story. <laughs> and I, uh, spoiler alert, newsflash, it's not Harry Potter. Okay. <laughs> He's a key character, but it's almost like when you're reading the book of Ruth, I, I'm always going back to that right now. Cause that's all that's on my mind. Who's the main character in Ruth? It's actually not Ruth. Um, and it's you're actually right. not Boaz. It's actually Naomi. Naomi. Yeah. And, and the whole question of that story is, will Naomi repent? And, mm. and turn to Yahweh. 
And it ends as mysteriously as the book of Jonah ends. Hmm. Ruth doesn't get the last word. So when she walks into the Bethlehem initially, the women say, Is it, can this be Naomi? And she says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, because I'm bitter, because the Almighty is against me. And at the end, the ladies of the town say positive things about Yahweh. He's blessed you. Hmm. And we're, we're waiting for the next verse with Naomi's response saying, Call me Naomi because I am pleasant, basking in the goodness of Yahweh. Well, she doesn't say a word, just like Jonah doesn't say a word. So, so mm-hmm. we read and we have to realize that sometimes the the main figure isn't the main figure, and and that will be the case when we see people like Snape. And um, I've read the books multiple times now and listened to them, and on on rereadings. Uh, you start to pick up on things about Snape that if the yeah. first time through you yeah. won't get till the end. <laughs> uh, but as one author said, the best uh, reading the end first and then starting from the beginning is just a fast way to critical reading, and that's what we want to do with <laughs> literature. And so I guess you're getting a little bit about that here. Yes, definitely. definitely. Um, there, there's so much more that we could talk about. I'm sure part of that's just because there are seven of these books, and the, and there's a lot that happens there. Uh, but I just want to end by talking about what Harry Potter can do for children. And we've hit this some, but I I think the biggest thing it can do for children is cultivate a sense of wonder and curiosity about what it means to live rightly in the world that they're in. Um, Though it transports us to another world, it's primarily shaping what kids do in this world and what adults do in this world. Mm -hmm. And so parents have a responsibility, whether it's reading Harry Potter or any other story, to help children see how someone lives in one world and, and how that there's good and evil in that world and how they face the same good and evil in this world. And by the grace of Christ, you can triumph over the evil. And there might be scary things in these novels, and there are scary things in this world. But as Chesterton said, and I'm going to summarize here, children don't learn about dragons for the first time in the fairy tale. They, they learn about dragons in this world. But in the fairy tale, they see that the dragons can be beaten. And, and so they can be beaten in this world too. So I hope that this has been helpful for you. Ethan, thank you for talking with me about this subject of Harry Potter and and fairy tales. So much fun. Thanks for having me. I just want to remind you that we do have our Harry Potter in the heart of Christmas as we seek to understand the true meaning of Christmas that's talked about in Harry Potter, but first talked about in the Christian scriptures. There are two of the same presentations, one on December 11th and then another on December 18th. You can find the links to register for this on Eventbrite or on our Facebook page. Page. And I should say, we're tracking carefully the coronavirus restrictions. And if there are any changes to these presentations, we'll let you know on our Facebook pages and we'll put a notification in Eventbrite as well. Questions and Answers about the Bible and Theology is a podcast of Crystal Lake Baptist Church in Burnsville, Minnesota. To learn more, you can visit us online at clbcmn.org.